Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Ronald Sanchez Jr. was born and raised in Garden Grove, California, with three brothers and one sister. Growing up, he enjoyed the outdoors, hiking, and fishing. After graduating from high school, he enlisted in the Army. It was 1995. The Washington Post reported that he was deployed to Iraq for three tours as a combat engineer in 2003, 2005, and 2007. While there, he worked on bridges and construction projects and saw his comrades and close friends face casualties. He faced injuries of his own and had many surgeries on his knees and shoulders. In 2011, Ron was 35 and discharged from the Army, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He had served his country for 17 years. He moved to Missouri, but the memories came back to haunt him. His brain would push them aside, but then he couldn't stop them from seeping back out. He sank into a deep depression and he and his wife divorced, although they remained good friends. He spent his days alone holed up in his apartment. He wasn't taking care of himself, was surviving off junk food, slept most of the day, and stayed up during the dark hours of the night. He'd venture out only in the evenings when the streets were quiet and there was less chance of him running into people. Ron didn't want to live the rest of his life this way. He had always been active and wanted his health back. He knew his life wouldn't change unless he took steps to make it happen. He reached out to Veterans Affairs, and they suggested he move to Oklahoma City, where they had recreational programs for recovering veterans. The move was a good one for Ron. Outside Magazine reported that therapists helped him put a name to what was happening inside his brain. They gave him coping techniques that helped him leave the house. They encouraged him to walk. First, it was just a few blocks, then a mile, then two, then twenty. He also began cycling and rowing in dragon boats and returned to hiking. His ex-wife, Elizabeth, described him as a man with a big heart who would help anyone. He was candid about his experiences and openly shared his PTSD journey and had a plan to one day bike across the U.S. to raise awareness for veterans. Ron joined a local hiking group. Hiking with others was something he had never done before, and it opened up a place for him to heal. He educated himself on the types of gear he'd need for overnight trips and learned how to dehydrate his own food. In the fall of 2017, the group went on a long weekend hiking trip along the Buffalo National River. One of the members, Brenda, was concerned her sleeping bag wasn't going to be warm enough, so Ron gave her a bunch of hand warmers to keep her warm. 
She knew he was special, and later they began dating. Ron began thinking about hiking the Appalachian Trail, a grueling trek over almost 2,200 miles that passes through 14 states from Georgia to Maine. It was a hike that Brenda had attempted years earlier, and she encouraged him. Only about 25% of hikers complete the trail, and Ron planned to be one of them. He used military surplus items to make his own lightweight gear and watched YouTube videos to prepare himself. The Appalachian Trail, or AT as its nickname, represented a path to recovery for Ron, as it had for many veterans before him. The solitude would provide him the time and space to process his thoughts and emotions. In 2011, he was one of 5,000 hikers who registered to hike the AT. He had planned a through-hike, which was the full distance of the trail. The best time to hike is in the spring, but because of his knees, Ron knew it would take him longer than most and planned to get an early start so that he could give his body a break when it needed it. In early January, Brenda traveled with him to the start of the trail in Springer Mountain in Georgia and spent a couple nights with him before he headed out alone. Ron pressed on. The weather was almost unbearable. It was still winter in the mountains with fierce winds and snow. It is a tradition for hikers to have a trail nickname, and he chose Engineer. It seemed appropriate, but often the name that sticks with one is one that others choose for you. When he ran into another duo hiking and shared his military and PTSD experience, they renamed him Stronghold, and the new name stuck. In early March, Ron was 100 miles into his hike, and his knees were bothering him. He exited the trail in Franklin, North Carolina, and found his way to a hostel. There, he befriended the owner, Colin, a fellow thru-hiker. The two quickly bonded, and Ron stayed for a couple of weeks, exchanging free room and board for helping out around the hostel. Ron got back on the trail, and by mid-April had hiked about 450 miles and reached Damascus, Virginia, when he decided to quit. The loneliness and the demons in his head had become just too much for him, and Brenda understood. She drove and picked him up. Not long after returning to Oklahoma, the AT was calling him back, and he wanted to finish what he had started. He knew he needed to prepare himself, both physically and mentally, and hiked again with the local group, and spent time with the therapist at Veterans Affairs. In early May, Brenda drove Ron back to the AT, and the couple spent a couple nights at a hostel before he headed out alone. Once again, he reveled in nature's beauty, listening to the song of a bird while the lush green forest soothed his soul. Meanwhile, in nearby Canada, just over the border in New Brunswick, Kirby Morell grew up listening to people talk about the Mount Katahdin summit on the AT, and knew that one day she would climb it. 
Kirby was athletic and had played rugby in university and liked to hike, kayak, and was a power lifter. In March, after defending her Master of Science thesis on sea lettuce, 28-year-old Kirby flew from Halifax to Atlanta to begin her solo hike. By May, she was hiking the trail, just as the brown colors of winter were giving away to the colors of spring, with rolling green hills and feral horses roaming wild. James Jordan was also hiking the AT with his dog, and he had demons of his own, suffering from schizoaffective disorder. He was 33 years old and had had a difficult life and been arrested many times. He gave himself the nickname Sovereign, which means Supreme Ruler. For weeks on the trail, his behavior had become erratic and dangerous. Using a shovel or a knife with a long blade, he verbally threatened other hikers. In April, he threatened a couple of hikers in Tennessee and was arrested. He pled guilty to possession of marijuana and providing false identification to police. But the hikers didn't want to press charges because that would mean returning to Tennessee to testify in court. So the sheriff had no choice but to release him. He was fined and put on probation. James returned to the Appalachian Trail. Sheriff Michael Hensley posted a message on social media warning hikers in the area. Kirby's name on the trail was Tuke, given to her for the nickname Canadians call a knitted hat. On the trail, hikers share information and post updates in shelter registers and mobile phone apps. She had heard about James and was on alert. Many hikers were planning their routes around him just to avoid him. On May 9th, she was a hundred miles into her hike when a black bear stole her food, forcing her to make her way into town to pick up new supplies. She was sitting at a table in a restaurant enjoying lunch when she spotted James through the window. She googled his photo to confirm it was him then posted a note in the trail register at the restaurant to warn others. She planned to hike out ahead of him in the hopes of avoiding him. But a few hours later, she ran into James on the trail. She remained calm and turned on the politeness that Canadians are known for and made small talk and petted his dog. They parted ways and she texted her husband to say she just ran into him. And he texted her back, Run away. Have fun. Please don't get murdered. It's common for hikers who don't know each other to share shelters. And that night when she made it to camp, there were three other hikers. A couple and Ron, who was almost 550 miles into his journey. She'd met him a few days earlier and was happy to see her friendly face. A few hours later, and without warning, James arrived at their camp. He strung up dental floss between the trees to mark his spot and spread his belongings around. He wandered around talking to himself, then settled down at the campfire and sung by himself for a half an hour. The four campers distanced themselves 
by retreating to their tents and settled in for the night. Just before midnight, James went up to each of their tents and through the thin nylon walls told them they deserved to die and threatened to kill them. When he withdrew into the woods, the four decided to pack up and leave in the dark. But before they could, James returned, holding a 20-inch knife, and stood in their way. Court records reveal that the couple tried to defuse him by talking to him, but James' schizophrenia was in an acute psychosis. He asked them, Why are you hunting me? The couple managed to flee, and James chased them, but gave up after a half mile and returned to the camp. Ron managed to send an SOS message on his phone, and he and Kirby were ready to leave when James approached Ron and accused him of hitting him with a rock. Ron responded by saying that he hadn't, and he too tried to defuse James. Kirby walked a few feet down the trail and turned to make sure Ron was following her. Her eyes grew wide in shock as she saw James thrust a knife into Ron's upper body and stomach. Ron fell to the ground. Kirby's instincts kicked in. She turned and ran with a 30-pound backpack on. James chased her and caught up to her. She raised her arm. He stabbed her and she fell backwards onto her pack. He landed on top of her, trapping her, while he stabbed her arms, legs, torso, and head. She was severely injured, but still alive. She laid as still as she could and held her breath to make him believe she was dead. And it worked. After what seemed like forever, He wandered away to find his dog. When she thought James was gone, Kirby stood up and began walking. She knew hikers were camped about six miles away and had to reach them. She didn't realize the full extent of her injuries. Her right arm wasn't working at all, and her left was barely moving. Blood streamed down her face, and at every step, blood spurted out of her leg. After about a mile, she stopped and tried to rack duct tape around her leg, which was difficult with the injuries to her arms. She was forced to drop the roll of duct tape onto the forest floor, which bothered her because a hiker's mantra is to leave the earth as she found it. Meanwhile, the couple that had left first ran four miles down the trail and reached the road, where they called 911 at 2.30 a.m. Walking for her life and fueled by adrenaline, Kirby managed to find another couple of hikers who helped her hike six miles until they, too, reached a road crossing and called 911, 42 minutes after the first call. Around 3.30 a.m., another couple who were camping nearby her James walking around their tent, saying loudly, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. He was talking disjointedly about being hunted and someone trying to bash his head in with a rock. 
He appeared to be talking to his dog, asking him, Are you scared? Yeah, I am too. Then he bumped into their tent and asked for a flashlight. They quickly gave him one, and luckily he left. Three hours later, Ron's emergency SOS led the Witt County Sheriff's Office tactical team to the campsite. There they found James, his clothes covered in blood. Nearby lay the knife and Ron, dead at 43. James was arrested and charged with murder, attempted murder, and three counts of assault. A medical examiner determined Ron's cause of death as stab wounds to his torso. It is not lost on us that he survived three tours in Iraq only to be murdered on home soil. Kirby was flown to a hospital in Tennessee. She had been stabbed nine times and received 40 lacerations, but luckily he had missed any vital organs. Her neck and one finger had to be glued shut, and 50 staples were used to close her wounds and 10 sutures across her forehead where she'd been cut to the bone. Kirby spent months in rehabilitation to overcome the nerve damage and regain use of her arms and legs. In a miraculous testament to her determination, four months after the attack, she rejoined some friends she'd met on the trail and drove to the base of Mount Kadadin, and together they hiked to the summit. But for Kirby, that wasn't enough. Instead of turning around and descending the way she'd arrived, she continued across the knife edge, a steep, thin trail that crosses two massive peaks. She is committed to hiking the AT again, a through hike from beginning to end. Since 1974, there have been almost a dozen murders along the Appalachian Trail. In a courtroom in Virginia in April 2021, James was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and the judge committed him to a psychiatric hospital until he recovers from his mental disease or defect. Although the physical wounds have healed, Kirby has a permanent reminder on her face, a deep scar that strangers often ask her about and stares back at her every time she catches a glimpse of herself in the mirror. Fox News reported that in her victim impact statement, she remembered James's eyes that night and hears Ron's voice cry out, asking her to wait for him. She believes she made the best choices that night, but says she will never forgive herself for not holding Ron's hand and telling him she was going to get help. She wished she'd let him know he wasn't alone. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Adam Mays. He immersed himself into the Bain family. It was as if they had become the family he wished he'd always had. But over time, his infatuation turned into an unhealthy obsession 
that ended in betrayal, abduction, and murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>